for today's message is from Revelations chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good morning. Happy Juneteenth to you on this incredibly gorgeous day. Thank you for being here worshiping with us on a day that reminds us that everyone is equally created in the image of God. That reality has obviously not always been recognized in this country, even though it should have been, and it's important then to celebrate any time that our world moves toward justice, toward recognizing the image of God in each person. As believers, our hope is in this world that Jesus is bringing, where the value and the dignity of every human being does not need to be questioned. It's just always going to be assumed. That's the world that we're looking forward to. That is the freedom that he's brought us into in this world, in the church, that we can now express with each other. But that does not take away from the importance of today for our country. It's appropriate then to celebrate when God allows any bit of his righteousness, any bit of his goodness to break in to this present evil age. And so I hope you're able to join in and celebrate in some way, even if that's simply by acknowledging that our country needs to. Moving to our passage. We're continuing our Sunday teaching series today in the book of Revelation. We've been learning what's important to Jesus as he evaluates his church. And today we come to the last letter, and the contrast could not be greater between how this church is doing and the one that we heard from last week. Last week, Jesus had nothing but positive things to say to the church in Philadelphia. This week, there isn't even anything slightly positive in this letter to the one in Laodicea. And the negative things that he sees in this church, he says really strongly. Now, the strongest of them is a little hidden in our translation. Jesus says, verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He looks at this church and he says there is something about what they're doing, about their works, that is so offensive to him that it makes him want to get rid of them, to spit them out of his mouth. Now that's actually the genteel way 
to translate the Greek word there. Other versions will say spew, getting across the idea of this almost involuntary reaction, which is closer, but the word really means vomit, which you find in a number of translations, that I will vomit you out of my mouth, that there is something so repulsive here, so akin to a gag reflex, that when Jesus looks at them, and he looks at how they're living as believers, it offends him so deeply he feels nauseous, wants to throw up. Essentially, he says to them, your spirituality is disgusting. It makes me sick, makes me want to puke. Such a vivid picture that you're given here. Jesus, the friend of sinners, the one who had no trouble touching lepers, whose skin was wasting away. He wasn't grossed out by that. The one who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes with political tools and sex workers who wasn't grossed out by them. This Jesus now wants to throw up. He is that disgusted with how his people are living. I read this and I want no part of that. I don't want that to be true of me. I don't want to be someone who the thought of me makes our God sick. I don't want that to be true of our church. And so I want us to pay attention this morning to three things from this passage so that this is not us. First, what is it that these Christians are doing that makes Jesus sick? What's the cause of his nausea? Second, what do they need to do not to make him sick? What's the cure? And third, what reason do they have for trying? What's their confidence? See, if you can generate this strong a reaction in the Son of God, what hope is there that it can be undone? So three things today. What's the cause? What's the cure? And what's their confidence? First, what is it that they're doing? What are their works that have this kind of impact on Christ? Look at Jesus' indictment of them in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says there's a twofold problem here. First, they have conflated material and spiritual prosperity. They're really well off financially. I am rich, I have prospered, and they wrongly conclude from their prosperity that I need nothing. Not that they have no material needs, but that they have no needs whatsoever. No needs that cannot be handled on their own. They believe that their will, wealth, is enough to handle anything that comes along in their lives. And they've succumbed to something here that is always a temptation for God's people. You read through scripture and there is so much in it about how material prosperity and wealth can chip away and undermine your spirituality. That it is so much easier to trust your bank account to provide for you than it is to ask God for daily bread. That wealth tends to insulate you from the hardships of life. That if you're bringing home a good income, if gas and food go up, you don't love it, probably even complain about inflation a little bit, but it doesn't hurt in the same way as if you don't have a good income. It means life costs more now, 
but it doesn't force you to make decisions about what you can and can't do like other people have to. Wealth insulates you from the hardships of life. And having a good income means that you can have a higher quality of life, that you have access to good health care, that you can enjoy yourself. You can go where you want to go, when you want to go there. That you can enroll the kids in camps, activities that will help develop them so that they can reach their potential. Wealth both insulates you from hardships and it gives you a higher standard of life. Now, scripture never makes you feel bad about having things or being prosperous. It doesn't even make you feel bad about enjoying life. But over and over and over and over, it calls you to realize how easy it is to rely on what you have to give you a good life. To quietly replace the God who is the source of all that you have with the things that you have from him. To forget that he's the source and to start believing that you are. In other words, scripture warns you that material wealth makes it easy to be self-reliant, not God-reliant. To think that you can take care of all of your needs. Going further, to believe, to live as if you have no needs that you can't handle, including spiritual needs. And that's the first problem in Laodicea. These Christians think that because they're well-off physically, that that also means they're well-off spiritually, that they have no needs across the board. Which then leads to the second problem. There's an arrogance to this group of people. Notice again Jesus' indictment. They approach their world by referring first to themselves. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. They haven't learned the lesson of Genesis 1. That there is only one unlimited, independent being in the universe, and that everything else in the universe depends on him. That every bit of the universe comes from him that it all has its energy and life from him, that it continues to be provided for by him so that it can function well within the plan that comes from him. These Christians are not living with that conscious awareness of humble dependence, reliance on God for everything, for life, for breath, for spiritual health. And so they don't start their sentences with God. They start with I, with a reference back to themselves. They're not living out of Genesis 1. Instead, they're living out of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent tempts Eve to disobey God by saying to her, verse 5, you will be like God. Just listen to me, Eve. Disobey just this little tiny bit, and you will be like God. You will be an adequate substitute for him. You can start your sentences with I, not with God. That temptation was too much for Eve. She gave in, along with Adam, verse 6, who was standing there at her side, who also gave in plunging humanity into this war for who will be God in our lives. And so the human race now struggles against our creator, wanting to put ourselves in his place, of not wanting to feel dependent on him, 
not wanting to feel our need of him, wanting instead to be independent. And this comes early to every one of us. If you're a parent, doesn't matter how old your child is, but you have realized by now, you don't have to teach this independence to your child. It comes out early. They start telling you very early on, I do it myself. They don't always have to tell you that. They just go ahead and do it themselves. They dress themselves by putting their shirt on backwards. And they don't want your input on that decision. They really don't want your help rectifying that decision. Or it comes out when they decide to cut their own hair. Or clean up a mess that they made by spreading it bigger. When they don't want your help but find some way to tell you, I do it myself. Now, there is some goodness in that, right? There's a sense of taking ownership in the world, of ruling and subduing. But you also hear that other piece there, that sense of independence that says, I don't need you. It's a sense where it's not simply a healthy maturity. It's an insistence that they don't need help when they really do, when they should be appropriately dependent. And what you see in a child is the history of our world. It's a history of humanity saying to God, we do it ourselves. We don't need you to tell us how to do it or what to do. We're smart enough to figure out how to live together. We can build healthy communities without you. We can build just nations without you. We don't need to hear from you how to take care of our planet, how to diagnose what's wrong with people. We don't know, need you to help fix what's wrong. We can do all of that without you. Now, for all of those of you who have gone through some kind of secular education, who have a career, you realize this is the world that you live in, that this is the discipline and the career that you now have. So whether we're talking about science, engineering, technology, business administration, finance and investing, psychology and counseling, education, teaching, medicine, the starting point of each of those disciplines is what? That it doesn't matter if there is a God or if there isn't, we can still learn how to live life and do it well, whether or not he exists. We don't need him. We're smart enough, gifted enough to figure this discipline out on our own without having to rely on him for his help or his guidance. At times that's stated explicitly, other times it's implicit. But the bottom line is that we believe as the human race that we can do life without God. And that belief does not go away just because we come to Jesus and ask him to make things right between us and God. You read this letter and you realize it's still with us. When Jesus says he wants to throw up, he sees how the Christians are living there at Laodicea, and he recognizes this same independent streak in them. And so even in the church, we do things that say to God, we have a better way to live than how you've told us to live. We don't need your help. And so we can read in Scripture, and we know that God has said that we can't live by bread alone, but that we have to live on every word that proceeds from his mouth. And yet many of us will spend more time on a weekly basis figuring out what to eat and where to eat it than we'll spend in Scripture 
listening to him. Or we'll sleep around before we get married. Because it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal to us as God seems to think it is. Or we don't really feel like we need to go to our brother or sister when they've offended us. Instead, we can talk about them to other people in the church. We can talk about what they said, about what they did, and we believe that that will forge a better community than anything God's told us. Or we let politics divide our churches, living as if our battle really is against flesh and blood, when Jesus has told us clearly that it's not. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is looking at when he sees Laodicea. Self-satisfied, self-reliant believers who put more trust in themselves to live out the Christian life than they put in Christ. And the more well-off we are, the easier this is to do. That's the danger that you and I face in the Philadelphia suburbs. We have so much of what we need physically that we can start to think, along with the believers in Laodicea, I need nothing, not even from God. And it's not that we actively reject God, turn our backs on him. It's that we don't even think maybe we should turn to God. Instead, we think we got this, whatever the this is, just like we got everything else. And so we just gently, easily slip into relying less and less on Christ without realizing we're doing that. And we can end up so far away from him that Jesus has to say to us, you don't get it. You don't realize how well off you're not. You don't realize that while you're congratulating yourself on having made it, that you don't see that you're really wretched and pitiable. Now, when he says things like that, you realize he's obviously talking about a different reality there than the one that they're used to thinking about. They're used to looking around at the physical world and thinking that they've got everything that they need. But Jesus is not talking about this world. He's focused on the next. That's why verse 14, he calls himself the Amen. That means the true or the truly which is such a weird thing to call himself until you realize that it's another reference back into the Old Testament and that there is one place, just one in all of Scripture, where Amen is used as a title. It's in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, where God calls himself the God of Amen, or as some of your translations will say, the one true God or the God of truth. And it talks there in Isaiah about how people will swear by the God of truth or they will bless themselves by the God of truth. Think, why are they doing that? Verse 17, the very next verse. For behold, I, the God of truth, create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And Jesus takes that title, calls himself this, here in Revelation chapter 3, in order to communicate to us that he is the God of truth who creates a new heaven and earth. He's the source of the new creation. Or as Revelation 3.14 says, he's the beginning of God's creation. Not the beginning of this old creation, this old world. He created this world. But in some important way, he's the beginning of the new creation. That by his resurrection, 
He's the beginning, not of this present world, but the next one. That the next one began with him in his resurrected body when he rose from the dead. And so now he's talking to his people. And he says to them, as the Amen, the one who's brought into being the new creation, you think you're doing well. You think that you have no needs. But that's because you're thinking about the wrong world. And so when you say, I am rich, I have prospered, you're speaking from within the old world, not the new one that I've begun. And if you consider that new world, the one that you have now been born into by faith in me, you're not well off at all. You're not rich in new creation riches. You're poor. You don't have any real discernment about new creation life. You're not insightful. You're blind. You're not clothed in new creation clothes. You're naked. Far from having everything that you need in this new creation, you don't even have the basic necessities. And you don't have them because you think that you can provide what you need for yourself. You are relying on the things in this old creation to give you what you need to live in the new one. And what's that done? It's led you to be self-satisfied, self-reliant, smug. And I can't tell you how much it sickens me. That's point one, the cause of Jesus wanting to throw up. Point two, what's the cure? Notice that Jesus immediately points them away from their self-sufficiency to himself. To himself as the source of all that they need to live out a new creation lifestyle while still living here in this old one. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, pick up on the weirdness of what he's just said. He said, you're poor, not rich, so buy from me. And you think, how's that work? If you don't have anything, if you're poor, how can you buy something? It's the same thing that God says in the Old Testament again in Isaiah 55. We read there, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You realize you can get what you need without it costing anything. Why? Because God will give it to you. And yet there is something that you have to bring to God. It's in the first line. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. In order to come to God, you have to have one thing. You have to have thirst. And you have to be aware that you're thirsty. You have to have an awareness that you have a need. You have to be aware that you have a need that you cannot satisfy on your own. An awareness of being able to come to Jesus and saying, please, give me something to drink. My spirit is thirsty. Give me something to feed me. I have to have an awareness. 
that I don't only need the power of God to enter into the Christian life, I need the ongoing power of God to live a godly life. That I don't have the resources to do this on my own, but that I have to keep coming back to him to get those resources on a regular basis. And so I have to come to him for three things that Jesus says here, for riches, for clothing, and for spiritual discernment, real sight. So first I come to him for real riches, gold refined in the fire, for purity before him, for a lifestyle that he approves of, one that matches him. I come to him for spiritual purity. Second, I come to him for clothing. Being naked in the Old Testament was a metaphor for getting involved with idolatry. And so Jesus says here, come to me to get a faithful heart, a heart that, that stays faithful to me, a heart that doesn't wander and trust other things more than you trust me. I come for purity. I come for singleness of heart. And third, I come to him for eye salve, for healing so that I now have spiritual discernment, so that I can see the world the way that it actually is so that I see that this world is passing away and that a better one is coming. That I see how to live well in this world while I look forward to this one that's coming. So that I'm caught up doing things here and now that will have lasting eternal value, that will translate into the next one. So that I don't get caught up in things that will stay here, that will die here, that will not continue into the new creation. Real spiritual purity, singleness of heart, true discernment. That's what you need to escape being poor, blind, and naked. And if you think about those three things, or if you think about the opposite of them, you get an even better sense of what characterizes that self-satisfied, self-reliant, do-it-yourself religion that makes Jesus sick. It's the opposite of each one of these. It's one that is not pure. It's impure. Where you hold a loose morality that assumes God doesn't really care what you do or don't do. Those commands are nice, but they're not really all that important. You have a loose morality. Or it's one where you place greater trust in creation than you do in God. You believe that if you had a little bit more of what this world has to offer, money, sex, power, fame, success, then that would give you the best life that you possibly could have. And then thirdly, it's the belief that you can see clearly without any help from him. That you don't need him to teach you to see the world from his perspective. It's the belief that you are wise enough, for instance, to know on your own what injustice is without going to him, without going to the only one who is perfectly just to learn from him. But instead you believe, oh, I can just sort of pick that up in the air from the people around me, that'll be good enough. Or it's the belief that you can tell when you're being greedy without going to the one who is constantly giving to other people. Or that you can know how much free time and entertainment you need without going to the one who is always working so that every creature has what they need. Being blind, spiritually blind, is the belief that you do not need to study scripture 
in order to see clearly that you can do that just fine on your own. It's the belief that your moral compass, that your understanding of the world are good enough. It's the belief that you know enough to navigate your world. You don't need anything from him. It's that belief, whether you say it out loud in your head or not, or whether you just live it out, it's that belief that makes you truly blind. Which tells you actually one of the awful things about spiritual blindness. See, if you're physically blind, unable to see, there's no way you can't know that. It's obvious to you. When I take my glasses off, I can't drive because I can't see the signs. And if I can't see the signs, I know there's a whole lot of other things that I can't see either, which would make me then a danger to other people, danger to myself. It's just obvious. But that's not true of spiritual blindness. These Christians at Laodicea, as well as your own experience, teach you that when you're spiritually blind, you think you can see. That was the Pharisees' problem. They thought they saw correctly. They thought they saw the world as it really is. And they were very offended when Jesus called them blind. Why is that? Because they were also arrogant. They did not want to come to him. They did not want to admit that they had a need. They didn't want to admit that they were not good enough, that they could not see on their own, that they needed him to heal them. That's what Jesus is offering here in Revelation 3. To give you what you need so that you're no longer spiritually impure, worshiping all the wrong things, and blind to your true nature. That's the cure for a spirituality that makes Jesus sick. You have to come to him to have one that does not offend him deeply. But then why? Point three. Why would you take him up on his offer? You've made him sick. Doesn't that make you kind of embarrassed? It, it does me. And I'm tempted then to say something like, Jesus, let me, let, let me see if I can clean up some of this mess myself, and then I'll come to you for help. <laughs> In other words, I'm tempted to rely on myself again, one more time, to get myself out of the mess that I've made for myself, or at least to make it a little less messy. I know that sounds dumb, but in the moment, it feels really reasonable. It's like a kid who goes around with a marker and writes on the wall and then realizes, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. But they don't want to admit that. They don't want to go to the parents and ask for help. And so what do they do? They go and find all of the cleaner products and try all the different ones and just make the spot so much bigger. That's what it feels like for me. If what I've done makes Jesus want to puke, why would I come to him now and face that? I'm ashamed of myself. That's when I need what I call a relational reason. A reason that overcomes my reluctance to go to him. A reason to trust him, to connect with him. A reason to trust him so that I'll go to him, so that I'll do what he says, and so that I'll get what I really need. And when you ask, does he give me that kind of reason in this passage, you realize actually he gives you several. First, you have to start by seeing that he comes to you. He doesn't wait for you to come to your senses, to see what you can't see. 
Instead, he comes to you and he starts telling you what he sees and he starts telling you what impact that's having on him. Now, why does he do that? Is it to make you feel bad? If I point this out, then you'll never do it again. No, it's because he loves you. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What's the ground, the motivation for being zealous for repenting? It's because he loves us. You look at this and you, you think about what he just said. Those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove, I rebuke. Clearly he's reproving this church, which is the evidence of his love for them. Now you read back through the last six letters and you will discover he has only been this explicit about his love with one other church. It is really clear that he loves all of his churches, but he's only said out loud that he loves one other time. That was to the church of Philadelphia, the only one that he has nothing bad to say about them. But now here he does it again. Very, very special thing. He says it to the believers in Laodicea. He wants them to understand that while he's sickened by what they've been doing, how they've been living, he is not sick of them. He loves them. Why would you go to him? Even when you've made him violently ill, it's because he loves you. The mess that you've made of your life, your self-satisfied, self-reliance, that sickens him to his stomach, but it does not stop him from loving you. He still does, and so he takes the first step toward you. Why? Because he wants you. Start there. And then realize what his goal is. That it's to restore intimacy with you. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now be really careful here. You may have heard this passage used before for evangelistic purposes, to call someone to start a relationship with Jesus. That is not what Christ is doing here. He's talking to his church, not to unbelievers. It's not evangelism that he has in mind. What does he have in mind? You really see this when you trace that phrase about knocking on the door back into the Old Testament. And that's when you come across a passage in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, where a bride is in her bedchamber and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Her, the picture here, her bridegroom is outside the chamber knocking on the door, waking her up. And he's doing so in order to call her to continue to express the love that she has for him. And so he says to her, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. This is the cry of God's heart. It's an invitation from him to his people to renew their relationship with him. To be deeply, intensely, intimate with him and it's not to people in general it's to individuals look at verse 20 again there in verse in revelation if anyone he's not talking to laodicea in general he's talking to anyone he's talking to you he's talking to me to anyone who has been self-reliant 
to anyone who has not prioritized their relationship with him, to anyone who hears him and responds to him. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. This is Christ's promise to you. He will not hold himself back. If someone hears him and wants him, if they open themselves to him, he will come in and eat with them, share a meal with them. In ancient times, this was called table fellowship. It was the intimacy of sharing a life together. Jesus promises that you can have that. He's promising that you can have something close, something warm, something restored. And you can feel that in this passage. The longer Jesus talks, the warmer, the more intimate his invitation becomes. There's a shift in the way that the letter feels. A shift that tells you the kind of goodness that you can expect to have from him if you'll respond to him. See, the letter starts with a lot of energy. It starts with a lot of ugly energy with Jesus wanting to vomit, but then it moves to an invitation. He's not reacting. He's engaging, reaching out, extending himself. The energy level is dropping. It's an invitation to receive from him what you need in order to be together with him in an intimate setting here on this earth, figuratively sharing a quiet meal together. The emotional energy goes from high to low, from expulsive to inviting, from violent to quiet, from disruptive to intimate. He loves you. He wants you, and you can feel it the longer he talks to you. And then he adds one more thing. He tells you that anyone who conquers, who overcomes their self-reliance, will, verse 21, sit with him on his throne, as he also conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. He tells you that there is nothing that you're going to give up on this earth in order to have him that you're not going to have multiple times over in the new creation because you're going to reign with him in the new creation. He offers you himself, and what do you get with him? You get everything else as well. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Want Jesus more than you want anything else, and you end up not only eating with him, but reigning with him. You get everything else along with Christ. But want something from this world more than you want him, and you end up without him. And since this world ends, you'll end up without that other thing too. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And it's really possible to have heaven, to have him, because he is the amen, the one who begins the new creation, but who does so by conquering, by overcoming his own temptations. Think in one other place of scripture for a moment. Think back to when Satan offered Jesus various things when Jesus was out in the wilderness. When Satan offered all the same things to Jesus that tempt you and me as well. 
Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread, to provide for his own needs rather than to trust God to do so. He then tempted Jesus to throw himself down from the top of the temple, let God's angels catch him to show that he has no needs, has everything that he needed. And then Satan tempted Christ with godlike status to rule over all the kingdoms of this world by taking a real quick little shortcut, just one bow to Satan, one act of disobedience, and he could have it all. All the same temptations that humanity has never overcome on our own. Temptations for us to be as God, to set ourselves equal with God, to provide everything for ourselves as though we were God. Jesus, as a human being, resisted all of those temptations. Why? Because what he wanted more than anything else was intimacy with God. And so he conquered every temptation that Satan threw at him and ended up on a cross where he was forsaken by God, lost fellowship with God, lost the intimacy that he had with God. He lost that because he loves you. So that in trading places with you, you would never lose that. So that when his intimacy with his father was restored, it would always include you as well. So that when you give in to your temptations, to self-reliance, to thinking that you don't need him very much, you can repent because you have not lost what he paid for you to have. You can turn back to him one more time, asking him to give you what you need so that you can be close to him again. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord Jesus, we don't have it in us to maintain faithfulness with you. Thank you for sending a letter to this church 2,000 years ago, our brothers and our sisters, to show us your heart, to show us your passion for us, your desire for us still. Lord, I pray that we would trust your heart, that we would come to you longing for you, longing that you would give us everything that we need so that we can have a close relationship with you. In Jesus' name.